Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and substance abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1892, 25-year-old Francis Rattenbury, an up-and-coming architect, stepped off the ship that had carried him thousands of miles. The journey from England to Canada had been long, but it would be worth it. This was where Francis would build his career. Although he knew he had the skill and creativity to be a great architect, Francis had a tiny portfolio and big ambitions. After working as an apprentice in England and getting nowhere, he decided to head to Canada, which was experiencing a building boom. Shortly after he arrived, he saw an ad in the paper. The government of Victoria, British Columbia, was looking to build a new parliament building. The city would choose the architect through a competition that anyone could enter. Francis immediately set to work drafting a sketch. His design was breathtaking. It was enough to earn him first prize and kickstart his architectural career. After his big win, Francis was hired to create building after building, including the Vancouver Courthouse, the Bank of Montreal, and Victoria's Empress Hotel. In the 37 years that Francis lived in British Columbia, he left a permanent mark on Canadian architecture. He was prolific, well-known, and well-liked. But as he aged, Francis withdrew from public life. He drank heavily and became increasingly depressed. His first marriage was unhappy, and he began an affair with a woman half his age. When he was finally granted a divorce and he and his mistress married, people disapproved of the relationship. Francis and Alma quickly became social outcasts. In order to escape the cruel looks of their neighbors, the Rattenburys moved to Bournemouth, England in 1929. They bought a comfortable house at Five Manor Road, but unfortunately, this home wouldn't provide the respite Francis so desperately desired. About six years after settling in England, he became the victim of a bloody murder. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free, exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the 1935 murder of Francis Rattenbury. This week, we'll follow Bournemouth police as they investigate the crime scene and narrow in on their top suspects. Next week, we'll discover the Rattenbury's hidden secrets, cover the trial that took England by storm, and reconstruct the crime that changed three people's lives forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
Around 10 p.m. on Sunday, March 24, 1935, 42-year-old Alma Rattenbury laid down in bed and let out a sigh. She'd spent the day planning a trip with her husband, 67-year-old Francis. It was a relief to pull on her silk pajamas and rest. But before she could get comfortable, Alma heard a groan. It was the sound of someone in pain, and it made Alma's heart beat faster. It could have been her husband, one of her servants, or worst of all, her six-year-old son, John. Alma pulled on her robe and rushed downstairs to investigate. She looked around, but the living room was empty. The groan came again. She followed the sound around the corner and into the drawing room, where she found its source. Francis Rattenbury sat slumped in his armchair. His skull had been cracked open and blood dripped down the sides of his face. Alma let out a guttural cry, then ran to her husband's side. Less than an hour before, they'd been chatting about their upcoming travels. Now his hands were icy to the touch. She shook him and screamed his name, but he was utterly unresponsive. Alma stepped backwards, breathing heavily. She'd been a nurse during the First World War, but it was a shock to see something like this at home. Suddenly, Alma stepped on something that sent a jolt of pain through her foot. She took in a sharp breath and looked down. She'd nearly tripped on Francis's dentures. This, more than anything, was too much for her to handle. She couldn't make sense of the scene, of Francis with his broken skull and missing teeth. She grabbed the dentures and ran back to him, trying as hard as she could to press the teeth back into his mouth to get her husband to speak. Francis didn't move. Alma's stomach twisted with dread. She ran to the kitchen, shakily poured herself a glass of whiskey, and screamed for her live-in maid, 26-year-old Irene Riggs, to come downstairs. Uh, Irene? Irene? Yes, ma'am. What's the matter? Call Dr. O'Donnell at once. Are you all right, Alma? No. Francis is in the drawing room. He's been hurt. Oh, my. I'll phone the doctor right away. When you're done, pour me another glass of whiskey, all right? (sighs) Irene called Dr. O'Donnell, the Rattenbury's family physician. He treated Alma for tuberculosis for many years, but on the night of March 24th, the house call wasn't for her. Irene told the doctor that Francis needed immediate attention. While O'Donnell was on his way, Irene fixed Alma another drink. Then she went into the drawing room, where she found her employer in a worse state than she'd ever anticipated. The blood on his head was beginning to harden into thick, black scabs. Irene's hands shook as she grabbed a rag and doused it with warm water. Working as delicately as possible, she wiped the mess from Francis's face and neck. Once some of the blood was gone, Irene could see that the 67-year-old man was breathing shallowly. He was unconscious, but he was still alive. Meanwhile, Alma stood in the corner nursing her drink and quietly crying. 
She was already getting tipsy. Irene had no choice but to take charge. She called the Rattenbury's other live-in servant, 18-year-old George Stoner, downstairs to help. George! Oh, don't get the poor boy involved. <laughs> what is it? Oh, Jesus. Help me get Francis into bed. He's been hurt. What happened? I don't know. You want me to carry him upstairs? We can all work together. Are you sure we should... He should be comfortable. I don't want to hurt him. For God's sake, George, it's not like any more damage can be done. Alma, George, and Irene work together to carry Francis upstairs and tuck him into bed. Alma placed a pillow under his fractured skull and kissed him on the forehead. She wiped her tears. Even as the whiskey fogged her brain, Alma thought of her six-year-old son, John. The little boy was asleep in bed, completely unaware of his father's injuries. Irene, go clean up the blood in the drawing room. It needs to be gone before John wakes in the morning. Yes, ma'am. And George? Yes? Get me another whiskey, will you? When O'Donnell arrived, Irene was frantically scrubbing red stains out of Francis's armchair. Alma, then properly drunk, looked on. Ignoring the scene, Dr. O'Donnell sped upstairs where he examined Francis. The architect's injuries appeared severe, but according to author and researcher Sean O'Connor, Dr. O'Donnell assumed that Francis had accidentally hurt himself perhaps by slipping and smashing his head into the drawing room piano. Francis clearly needed medical attention, but before the doctor made any decisions, he went back downstairs to speak to Alma. How did this happen? I haven't the slightest idea. We were having a fine evening planning a trip out of town. When I left him, he was reading a book, that one on the side table. Stay of execution. I've never heard of it. I believe it's about a man who commits suicide. Perhaps it made Francis think. I don't know. You think he did this to himself? Is it possible? I, um, doubt it. By showing detectives the book, Alma suggested that Francis might have committed suicide. Although she didn't say it outright, she and her servants knew that Francis had been struggling with depression for a number of years. He'd mentioned ending his own life on more than one occasion. But Dr. O'Donnell didn't think this was a plausible explanation. Francis's wounds made it look as if he'd had a serious accident or been bludgeoned. No person could inflict such injuries on themselves. O'Donnell began to wonder if the architect was the victim of foul play. Whatever the cause of Francis's wounds, O'Donnell knew they needed urgent attention. So he phoned Alfred Rook, a local surgeon who might have been able to save the old man's life. Rook arrived about five minutes after midnight. He examined Francis and determined that he needed to be taken to a private hospital for emergency care. This news sent Alma over the edge. She was drunk, sobbing, and bordering on incoherence. 
An ambulance showed up a few minutes later. A first responder lifted Francis into the back of the vehicle and took off towards the closest private hospital. George followed them in the Rattenbury's car while Irene stayed in the house to comfort Alma. At the private hospital, Francis's head was shaved so that the surgeon could take a closer look at the injuries. They were brutal and severe. It was obvious that the man had been violently attacked. O'Donnell placed a call to the police. Meanwhile, at Five Manor Road, after her husband had been wheeled away, Alma downed another glass of whiskey, her vision blurred with alcohol and tears. Sometime later, she heard knocking that seemed to come from very far away. Irene jumped up and answered the door. It was the Bournemouth police, there to investigate an attempted murder. Up next, doctors try to save Francis while police survey the Rattenbury's home. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and I'm hosting the new limited series, Hollywood Scandals. We all know that Tinseltown is the land of glitz and glamour, but look closer past the allure of bright lights and red carpets. There, you'll find a more disturbing tale, one filled with tragedies and transgressions so damaging they've turned hopes and dreams into high-profile nightmares. Every Monday on this Spotify original, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. From the mysterious drowning of Natalie Wood and the murder trials of comedian Fatty Arbuckle to the star clients of Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Each episode of Hollywood Scandals has been curated from shows across the ParCast network, covering over a century's worth of controversies, from the silent era into the digital age. Fame and fortune may be fleeting, but scandals, they stand the test of time. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Hollywood Scandals. Listen free only on Spotify. And now, back to the story. At approximately 10.30 p.m. on March 24, 1935, 42-year-old Alma Rattenbury found her husband unconscious in the drawing room of their Bournemouth, England home. Somehow, 67-year-old Francis Rattenbury's skull had been cracked open. Alma suggested suicide, but a doctor and surgeon examined the wounds in detail, and both thought foul play was likely. After an ambulance took Francis to a private hospital for emergency care, a constable from the Bournemouth police, a man by the name of Arthur Bagwell, arrived to investigate the Rattenbury's home. When he walked in, Alma was so drunk that she was nearly incoherent. Her maid, 26-year-old Irene Riggs, had to help her explain what happened. I came down the stairs and... And he was, oh, it was just awful, officer. I can't believe. It looked as if someone had taken an object and hit him on the head very hard. His skull was broken and there was a lot of blood. So much blood you wouldn't believe. What happened to the mess then? My son! My son, he... Mrs. Rattenbury requested I clean the mess so that her son wouldn't see it in the morning. You're telling me you cleaned the crime scene? 
Um, yes. Before I knew it was a crime scene, that is. You destroyed evidence. I didn't realize. I'm gonna have another drink. Alma, sipping still more whiskey, told Constable Bagwell the same story she told Dr. O'Donnell. After spending a peaceful evening playing cards and chatting with her husband, Alma went to bed and was woken half an hour later by someone moaning and screaming. Alma ran to the drawing room and found Francis bloody and unconscious. She said her husband had been depressed and was reading a book about suicide. It must have pushed him to end his own life. But the officer didn't buy it. In fact, Alma's drinking made him think that she had something to hide. It was as if she was trying to numb her mind not only to her husband's injuries, but to the events that led up to them. Bagwell called for backup. Before long, Inspector Mills, a Bournemouth police detective, arrived at the scene. Both officers were certain that someone had assaulted Francis. The only question was whether the assailant came from inside or outside the house. Do you always keep your back door locked, Mrs. Rattenbury? Mm-hmm. Well, at night she does. It's usually open in the daytime. Right. Do you keep all the doors bolted at night? Yes. I noticed the big French windows in the drawing room. You keep those locked as well? Yes, what's your point? Is there any way that an assailant might have broken into your home and attacked your husband? Is there anybody that might want to do that? No. No, everybody loved Francis. I can't believe that anyone would do this. I, I'm going to put on some music. According to Alma, every door and window was locked when she went to bed. She was probably too drunk to realize what that meant. If all the entrances were bolted shut, then Francis's attacker must have come from inside the house. Not including the victim, only four people lived at Five Manor Road. Six-year-old John couldn't be a suspect, so that narrowed the possibilities down to three. Alma, Irene, and George. They all looked somewhat suspicious. Alma was practically chugging whiskey and trying to convince authorities that Francis had attempted suicide. Irene destroyed potential evidence by cleaning up the drawing room. George might have followed the ambulance as a way to flee the crime scene. One thing was clear. Somebody at Five Manor Road was hiding a terrible secret. Police Constable Bagwell and Detective Mills searched the home for clues. Unfortunately, it was nearly 2 a.m., and they were too tired to do a very good job. Their preliminary investigation revealed nothing consequential, though they did confirm that bloodstains had been washed from the carpet, armchair, and floor. They were about to retire for the night when Alma stumbled over and stopped them in their tracks. I did it. With a mallet. I think I... I wanted to put him out of his misery. Where's the mallet? I hid it. Where? No, I'm sorry. That was a lie. My lover did it. Your lover? Yes. And who would that be? (laughs) It could be you if you agree to keep my secret. (laughs) 
Mrs. Rattenbury, please. <clears throat> Fine. What do you want then, money? I've got some right upstairs. Alma, stop. We don't want anything from you except answers, and you're far too drunk to supply them. Give the whiskey a rest. We'll be back to ask more questions later. Alma may have confessed to the assault, but she was too intoxicated for authorities to trust her. They needed to get a statement from her once the whiskey had worn off. While Alma became increasingly hysterical at home, the architect was in critical condition. If he died, his attacker would be charged not with assault, but with first-degree murder, a crime punishable by death. Dr. O'Donnell came back to the Rattenbury's home around 3.30 in the morning. He saw that the house was in chaos, with Alma still intoxicated and running around frantically. When Bagwell and Mills asked her for another statement, Alma repeated her previous confession. She insisted she tried to kill her husband out of pity. There was just one problem. Alma refused to show them the mallet. She said she'd bludgeoned Francis, yet she couldn't produce the weapon she'd supposedly used to do so. Nevertheless, she carried on. In the middle of her tirade, Dr. O'Donnell attempted to calm her down. Oh, do tell me he's going to be all right. I just can't fathom that he might die. Can we have a private word with you, Dr. O'Donnell? No need. I assume you want Mrs. Rattenbury put to bed. Something like that. Not a problem. Alma, darling, come here. I'm just going to give you a little sleeping pill, all right? Dr. O'Donnell gave Alma a capsule of morphine. This was fairly common practice in the early 20th century, and it likely wasn't the first time he'd provided her with the substance. Over many years of being treated for tuberculosis and other ailments, Alma had likely grown quite accustomed to taking the drug. She swallowed the pill without protest. O'Donnell hoped the morphine would knock her out for at least eight hours, but almost as soon as Alma made it to her bedroom, she turned around and came back downstairs. I have to... I have to tell you. I think it was Francis's son... What's she on about now? Mr. Rattenbury has children from a previous marriage, but as far as I know, they live in Canada. He's always hated his father. He would kill him if he had the chance. Bagwell, should I be taking this statement as evidence? I... No, she's drunk and drugged. Just... We'll have George put her to bed and make sure she stays there. George carried Alma to her bedroom and stayed with her until she fell asleep. Meanwhile, authorities did another sweep of the house. With Alma out of the way, it was easier for the officers to focus. They noticed that, beside the chair in which Alma first found Francis, there was a glass of whiskey. Perhaps Francis, like Alma, had a drinking problem. If he was intoxicated, it might have made him an easier target. Unfortunately, that's all officers managed to uncover. Bagwell and Mills had hoped to find the weapon while Alma was asleep, but she'd hidden the mallet well. That is, if there really was a mallet at all. Alma woke up around 6 a.m., still groggy from the alcohol and morphine. At 6.15, 
Constable Bagwell found a bloody mallet hidden beneath a decorative trellis outside the front door. The mallet also had a piece of flesh stuck to it. He had clearly discovered the weapon, confirming part of Alma's story. Two hours later, Alma was finally fully awake and mostly sober. Law enforcement cautioned her that at this point, any statements she made would be taken as evidence. Even so, Alma stuck to her narrative. She added a few details, telling police that she and Francis had been playing cards when he said he wanted to die. According to Alma, Francis dared her to kill him. They took her confession as fact, and at approximately 8.15 a.m. on Monday, March 25, 1935, Bournemouth authorities arrested Alma Rattenbury for attempted murder. Officers handcuffed the 42-year-old and walked her out to their police cruiser. Six-year-old John Rattenbury watched from his window as she was driven away. It would be the last time he saw his mother alive. Coming up, police put Alma in jail, then realized that Francis's real attacker might still be walking free. Now, back to the story. On the morning of Monday, March 25, 1935, 42-year-old Alma Rattenbury was arrested for the attempted murder of her 67-year-old husband, Francis. Officers brought her straight from her home to the Bournemouth Police Court. Alma was exhausted and, in all likelihood, hungover. She simply told the judge... I did it deliberately, and I would do it again. The proceedings took a total of three minutes. The judge ruled that Alma would remain in custody until at least April 2nd. Alma was then transferred to London's Holloway Prison, a women-only facility that looked more like a medieval fortress than a jailhouse. Alma was completely out of her element. Prior to her arrest, she had lived in relative luxury, Her husband, depressed as he was, provided her with silk robes, fur coats, and necklaces. The guards at Holloway Prison stripped Alma of these comforts, and there was certainly no whiskey to be had behind bars. Alma wrote frantic, pleading letters to her servants, 18-year-old George Stoner and 26-year-old Irene Riggs. To Irene, she wrote that she desperately needed hairpins and scented soap, To George, she asked if there was any way that Francis might live. The architect was under close supervision, but his condition was far from promising. Doctors monitored his vitals and prayed for his recovery, but by Wednesday, March 27th, things looked hopeless. Bournemouth police knew that Alma's charge would soon be upgraded to homicide. Yet her confession seemed all too convenient. It felt like Alma still wasn't telling police the full story. On Wednesday evening, while they were thinking about what Alma might be hiding, Bournemouth police received a call from Irene Riggs. I think you ought to send an officer over here immediately. George is, well, he's very drunk and saying mad things. What sort of things? He said he tried to kill Francis. He said he's the reason Alma is in prison. He's very, very drunk. I don't want to be here alone with him. If you could please, send someone quickly. We'll be there right away. 
Officer sped to the Rattenbury's home. 18-year-old George was on an alcoholic binge. Detectives pressed him on the events of Sunday evening, but whatever he said to Irene, he wouldn't repeat it. He was as incoherent as Alma had been a few nights before. Authorities couldn't arrest George on Irene's word alone, so they drove back to the station. It was nearing midnight, and they planned to follow up with George the next day. But Thursday morning was interrupted by the news that everyone had been dreading. At approximately 8.15 a.m., Francis Rattenbury finally succumbed to his injuries. Alma's charges were raised to first-degree murder. But after Irene's call, investigators weren't so sure that Alma was to blame. They drove back to Five Manor Road, wondering if George could be the real culprit. What if she's covering for him? Covering for a chauffeur? Very likely. I'm serious. They're both hiding something. I can feel it. You remember she mentioned a lover? She was practically drowning in whiskey. What if it's George? Oh, come off it. The kid is 18. Her husband was almost 70. Exactly. Maybe she was looking for some, I don't know, youthful excitement? You might be onto something. The officers pulled up to the Rattenbury's house. George wasn't home. He'd gone to London to bring Alma some hairpins in prison, so they spoke to Irene. Although she admitted that George had been acting strange lately, she swore that, as far as she knew, he and Alma's relationship was nothing more than friendly. But items found inside George's room suggested differently. Authorities uncovered a receipt from a recent stay at London's Royal Palace Hotel. The room was put under George's name, but paid for by Alma. Investigators also discovered a receipt for a diamond engagement ring that was signed with the name Mr. G. Rattenbury. George, it seemed, already fancied himself Alma's spouse. He'd gone so far as to take her last name. It was a massive discovery with even bigger implications. If Alma really meant to marry George, she might have done anything to get her husband out of the way. But just because George gave Alma an engagement ring didn't mean they would be wed. In fact, it didn't make any sense for Alma to agree to such a thing. George was a servant with limited future prospects. Alma would gain nothing by marrying him unless investigators were to believe that she was actually in love with a teenager. The idea felt pretty far-fetched. Still, whether Alma loved George or not, it was clear that she and her chauffeur had a secret, maybe even one that was worth killing for. Later that afternoon, Constable Bagwell and Detective Mills brought George's grandparents in for questioning. According to Irene, the chauffeur lived with his grandmother and grandfather before coming to work for the Rattenburys, and he still visited their home quite often. Do you have any idea where your grandson was last Sunday night? He stopped by our house around. Well, when would you say it was, honey? About 8.30. Anything stick out to you about the visit? Oh, not particularly. He came by to borrow a... a mallet and stayed to chat for a few minutes and left. He borrowed a mallet? Uh-huh. Give me just a moment. Is this the one he borrowed? 
I believe so. Are you absolutely certain? Well, I can't be absolutely certain, but it sure looks like my mallet. Okay, thank you. I've got to phone Scotland Yard. The interview helped tie George to the crime. Even if Alma had brought the mallet down on Francis's head, George had gone to fetch it for her. He was, at the very least, an accessory to murder. Bagwell called Scotland Yard and asked officers to arrest George at Holloway Prison, where he was reportedly delivering hairpins to Alma. Unfortunately, London authorities didn't make it to Holloway until almost 6 p.m., by which time George was on a train back to Bournemouth. Constable Bagwell sent a detective to the nearest train station to keep an eye out for the chauffeur. Excuse me, Mr. Stoner. Yes? I'm a detective with the Bournemouth Police Department. You're under arrest for the murder of Francis Rattenbury. All right. Sorry? I said all right. Suppose I'll have to answer a few questions at the police station, right? Right. Off we go, then. George seemed almost relieved to be arrested. At the station, officers searched his pockets. They found two photographs of Alma, one handwritten letter from her, and perhaps most shockingly, her father's gold watch. When authorities handled the watch, George told them, Careful with that. It was a gift from Alma, and it's worth more than you make in a month. The fact that Alma entrusted George with such an expensive family heirloom made their relationship look serious. Perhaps Alma really did intend to marry the chauffeur. Nevertheless, George wouldn't answer questions about the exact nature of their affair. Instead, he issued a simple confession in which he took total blame for Francis's death. I was watching through the French windows when I saw Elma kiss Francis goodnight. I don't know what came over me, but I couldn't stand to see her show him that kind of affection. I think he must have been asleep when I hit him. Still, it isn't much use saying anything. I don't suppose she'll be let out anyway. George was right. Alma remained in custody, mostly because police didn't know what to believe. They had two suspects, each of whom attempted to take full responsibility for the crime and absolve the other. Unsure what else to do, authorities charged George with Francis's murder. He, like Alma, was taken into custody to await a public trial. Right away, newspapers reported on the arrests. A deadly love triangle between a middle-aged woman, an old man, and a teenager made a great headline. Some outlets speculated that George killed Francis out of jealousy. Others thought Alma brought down the mallet to get her aging husband out of the way. But one narrative gained the most traction. Alma seduced the young man, then convinced him to kill Francis for her. The media and the public overwhelmingly viewed Alma as the driving force behind the architect's death. But nobody really knew what went on behind closed doors. Yet another survey of the Rattenbury's home revealed that Alma, and possibly Francis and George as well, struggled with more than alcoholism. 
One bathroom cabinet contained sleeping pills, various sedatives, antidepressants, and a hypodermic needle. While these may have been prescriptions, rumor had it that the Rattenburys weren't strangers to cocaine and morphine. Officers weren't sure what to make of this information. They didn't know if the drugs belonged solely to Alma or if Francis took them too. It was possible that Alma gave her husband a sedative and George finished the job. Maybe Alma got George hooked on the substances, or maybe it was the other way around. The drugs could have nothing or everything to do with the affair and the murder. Media outlets speculated and Bournemouth police kept digging, but the real truth wouldn't be revealed until Alma and George's trial, when both of their lives were on the line. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of Francis Rattenbury's story. We'll dive into Alma and George's highly publicized trial and finally discover the events that led to Francis Rattenbury's violent death. For more information on Francis Rattenbury, among the many sources we used, we found The Fatal Passion of Alma Rattenbury by Sean O'Connor extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Karis Allen with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Laura Faye Smith, Dan Velasquez, and Jen Wong. Solved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey there, Carter again. Before you go, remember to check out my new ParCast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. In anticipation of the Oscars, we're unearthing some of the most sordid controversies in showbiz history. Tune in every Monday. Follow Hollywood Scandals free only on Spotify. Spotify.